Amen. Thank you, Nate. I have a uh, love-hate relationship when Nate Killian prays um, because I love what he says, but then after you just hear this voice and authority that comes forth, and then the next voice you hear is mine, I just feel like it falls a little flat. Um, but thankfully, the, the power and authority of this moment is not found in me. It is not found in my voice. It is found in the word of God and what he is saying. Amen? This morning, we're actually going to be looking, finishing up, as was said earlier, we're finishing up the uh, epistle, the letter of Colossians. And this final section that we've been going through, I, th- I want to illustrate, and we're going to spend a little more time on an introduction, kind of setting the scene of, of why sometimes we have some difficulty with this. I have a question for you as you're considering, maybe you're opening your Bible to Colossians 4. And the question is, have you ever seen, observed an extraordinary result in someone's life and considered what extraordinary steps were necessary for them to achieve that outcome? You're observing their life and they did something incredible. And, and you're looking at that, and the question you want to know is, man, how did they do that? What did they do to produce that kind of result? Maybe, you've, maybe you're, when you were a student, you just observed someone that always achieved academic excellence. Their education was flawless. They always got that grade that you wanted. Maybe it was an interview of of an athlete who had just broken a world record and you're watching them and you're like, man, what did they do to break the record that no one else could do? Maybe it's the financial investor, while everyone else is losing money, they're thriving. We look at those extraordinary, they're not ordinary results, they're they're something, they're an outlier, and we're like, what are they doing? How are they producing that? When we see those extraordinary results, what do we want to know? What's their secret? And the answer we expect, if you're experiencing extraordinary results, we want an extraordinary reason. But so often the answers we get are quite ordinary. The athlete who's, who's found sporting success says it's because he eats right, exercises, and sleeps. The investor who's made a fortune claims it's because he worked hard. The student who always gets the best grades explains it's because his strict studying habits have led him to that. Have you ever seen or gotten answers like that? Maybe you've watched that interview with the athlete after TV and they said, well, I just followed my dream. I was passionate about it and that's what led me to here. I'm going to be honest and say that I have a certain level of cynicism and skepticism with answers like that. When someone's getting an extraordinary result and then they give me an ordinary reason, I'm like, well, wait a second, something's not matching up because if it was just the ordinary reason it wouldn't be an extraordinary result. I would expect everyone to be getting that result. That's the logical reason. The other honest reason is because often when I see that happen, they're not really being honest with the ordinary reasons. That sporting, the athlete who's had all the success and says it's because he sleeps, eats, 
exercises. And then you find out in the scandal that comes up a little while that he's doping, that he has all of these steroids, that he's doing all of these things. He's cheating. That investor, you find out it was all a scam, a Ponzi scheme. He was doing all of this. He was taking money from some, giving it to the other. He was getting rich, but everyone else was getting poorer. That person that always got the grades you wanted and said it was studying, and then they find out that he, they had the answers to all the tests. And so there's a certain level of skepticism for us when we see these extraordinary results and all they give us is ordinary methods. Have you ever felt that way with your Christian walk? Have you ever looked at someone and thought, man, they are doing incredible things for God. The transformation that's happening in their life is spectacular. What's their secret? What are they doing that I'm not doing? How are they experiencing that kind of transformation? If you recall, the, the, the book of Colossians, we've really divided it into three different parts. That last part is all about transformation. It's giving us, hey, this is how your life can re, uh, achieve extraordinary results. It can be transformed in a miraculous way. But we look through the list of chapters 3 and 4, and most of the list is ordinary. Verses 1 through 4. Have your perspective on Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Set your mind on the heavenly and not on the earthly. That's not that extraordinary. Okay, like have a mission, have a goal. Then the next section, he says, take off, put off the old self. Get rid of this sin that's on you that's not like Jesus. You are being transformed into the image of your creator. Well, yeah, I mean, I would expect that to be transformed, I would have to stop doing the parts that don't look like Christ. In that next section, he talks about life within the congregation. Be compassionate, kind, gentle, patient, forgiving, loving. Have the word of God saturate your gathering. Do everything in the name of the Lord. Again, I'm not, I don't think any of you were real surprised to read that in your Bible. And he talks about roles in the household. Submit to Christ. Whatever your role is, do that role in submission to Christ in the way that he describes. Your public life, what we saw last week. Pray. Talk to God about yourself. Talk to others about God. All of those are incredibly ordinary. And so we can look at those and say, wait a second. I'm looking at Paul's life. And Paul doesn't, how did Paul get these kind of results? And in all Paul's offering us is these ordinary expected methods. That's part of the danger that the Colossians faced. The question that they're asking is, what's the secret? What's the formula? And that seemingly innocent question has led and does lead many believers astray. Because what happened to the Colossians? What was that second section that we saw in Colossians in chapter 2 through chapter 3, uh, well, just chapter 2? What was it? It was the threat. And the threat was, 
you need a different method. You need something extraordinary. And we know the secret. Here's all of these plausible arguments that will delude you. Here's all of these rules and regulations that someone else will judge you and qualify or disqualify you. Here's all of these self-made religion, man-made methods of what you can and cannot do. Those, if you, that's the secret. That's where you find real transformation. Are we not susceptible to those kinds of things when someone comes and tells you, I have the secret. You're looking and you want that result. This is what you really need. Because in our mind, either Paul's lying and his extraordinary results aren't from the ordinary, or there's a problem with the logic because ordinary doesn't produce extraordinary unless the ordinary is built on the foundation of something truly extraordinary. And that's section one. The first part of Colossians is presenting what is extraordinary. The extraordinary is not in the method. Those are ordinary. The extraordinary is the foundation it's built on, but it's not a secret. It's not something that Paul is saying, well, once you get to level three of your Christianity, then I'll tell you what the mystery is. Once you graduate to this level, then I can tell you how to really do this. No, what's the mystery that's been revealed? Christ in us. That's the mystery. What is the whole part of the truth in the first section? It's about what? Who Christ is and what he's done. And so Paul has already told you, no, the, the way that the spectacular, the miraculous, the, the incredibly awesome transformation happens, the extraordinary, is ordinary methods built on an extraordinary foundation. See, that's the foundation that we have. The steps on the path can be ordinary because they're built on the foundation of the extraordinary. They're built on Christ. Sometimes the solution we seek is simpler than we suppose. We're thinking, oh no, it's got to be this really complicated way. The tools that God's going to give us, we have to, we're going to really have to work to figure them out. God doesn't do that. He says, here, I want you to be holy. I want you to find success. And so I'm going to give you the tools for that. But all of that begins with the foundation of being in Christ. So we come to our passage, the final verses of this letter. Within these verses, what, what ordinary tool does Paul present to us that will aid us in our pursuit of extraordinary transformation? Paul presents us to the power of faithful friends. Really? After all the talk about who Christ is, the preeminence of Christ, he's going to finish the letter talking about human friends? Yeah. Because they are an incredibly powerful tool that God has given us in order to help produce faithfulness in our lives. 
Too often we neglect to find faithful friends or be a faithful friend, and the result is we do not experience the extraordinary benefit God wants to give us. Here's our big idea. God gives friends in the faith to help believers faithfully fulfill their mission. God gives us this blessing that are his friends in the faith. Others who have the same mission, the same purpose, the same goal as you. And he gives us that in order to help us, help believers faithfully fulfill the mission he has given us. Now that's the theological big idea. I was talking to Ted Boykin last week though, and he said, hey, I really like when you have the children's Sundays, when you have the really short big idea. It's much more memorable. So I did a second one. Don't do this alone. That's it. Don't do this alone. We're going to start out by looking at the friendly encouragement we find in verses 7 through 9. Let's read it. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Within our passage, not even including both Paul and Christ, we have 11 named individuals. A few of them are only named here in Colossians, but a number of them are seen other places within Scripture. So as we go, we're going to spend a little time considering who these individuals were. But the first thing that we can say about them, they were friends of Paul. Paul's telling the Colossians, these are my 11 friends. These are people that I want you to look at. And the first ones are, are there to be an encouragement. The first individual we read about is Tychicus. Paul describes Tychicus as a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. We know from other places in Scripture in Acts 20 that Tychicus was a companion to Paul. He first joined him on Paul's journey to Jerusalem when the Jerusalem church was in need and the other Gentile churches sent delegates as a charitable mission to help the Jerusalem church. Tychicus was one of those individuals. What we also find in other parts of Scripture is that his ministry was to be a messenger for Paul. In Titus, in 2 Timothy, in Colossians, in Ephesians, it all talks about Tychicus going and being an encouragement to others. He was literally the one who took the letter of Colossians to this, this people. He had a ministry aiding Paul in what Paul could not do because as we'll see in this passage, Paul is in prison. And so here is this friend, here is this messenger for, who for several years has been traveling on Paul's behalf, taking messages, informing them, encouraging them, updating them on what has happened. But the Colossians don't know all of that yet. They don't know everything that Tychicus has done or what he is doing. Here's just some guy that they're meeting 
but they know what Paul says about him. He is a beloved brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. What is Paul really saying about him? This is a brother in Christ. He's commending the example of Tychicus. This goes back all the way to Colossians 1 and in verse 4, it talks about that the Colossians, Paul has heard of their love for all of the saints. Here is a saint, here is one who has been set apart, a believer who comes into their presence. But still, even if you read these things, beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant, we get an idea of, of his character, but still they don't really know him and yet, Paul, by using those three terms, is actually linking it with someone they do know. Turn to Colossians 1, verse 7. So go back two pages, if you have your Bible with you, just to Colossians 1, verse 7. Remember that the Colossians are not the result of Paul's evangelistic ministry, at least not directly. They would be grandchildren of Paul. That Paul shared the gospel with people that he knew and then those people went forth and shared it with the Colossians. And the person who did that was Epaphras. Now look at how Epaphras is described. Verse seven. Just as you learned it, the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Paul uses the same terms to describe Epaphras as he describes Tychicus. And what you see there is that even though they've never met Tychicus, they have a framework to think, oh wait, this guy is like Epaphras. This guy is like the one who brought the gospel to us. This is an individual we can tr trust. In verse 9, we see a second individual who accompanied him. But this is not someone that is new to the Colossians. This is actually someone they've had dealings with before. It's Onesimus. It describes and it says, And Onesimus, who is one of you? Now, Onesimus has an interesting story, and it's one that the Colossians would have been aware of. What was Onesimus? Onesimus was a runaway slave from Colossae. Now, we don't know exactly how this happened. Paul is in Rome. It's his first imprisonment in Rome. He's there. He's under house arrest for two years. And somehow, in the sovereignty of God, God links up this runaway slave from a place that Paul has never been to before. He brings him in contact with both Epaphras, who has been there, and Paul. And now Paul is sending him back. What do you think the reaction is of the congregation in Colossae when they see Onesimus show up with Paul's friends? How do you think that that went by? How do you think it went, especially when they're reading this letter? Because remember, the, this part is at the very end. So what came before they read this part? Colossians 3.22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Can you imagine all the sideways glances and like the awkward silence when that's being read and we're like, Onesimus is right there and he ran away 
And Philemon, it's likely, it's possible that Philemon was from Laodicea, but it's likely that Philemon was a member of this church. Here's the master, here's the slave, and Paul's talking about this relationship, and there's probably this awkward tension of like, just don't look, just ignore it, maybe it'll go away. They knew his past testimony. In Philemon 11, Paul describes Onesimus when he's talking to Philemon, and he says, in the past, he was not useful to you. But how does he describe Onesimus now? Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. In Philemon, uh, verses 10 and 11, it, it, we find that Onesimus came to faith in Rome. In Philemon 10, it says, I, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. That's the language that Paul often used when he would talk about those that he had the privilege of taking to know Christ. He would call them his children. What an encouragement to the Colossians. Here is one who had been transformed by Christ. He left as one lost and returns as one found. He left as a slave and came back free. Can you imagine what this was like, though, for Onesimus? He went back to make a wrong right. What must that have been like? What did that kind of humility cost him? Imagine the shame. Imagine the pride that needed to be swallowed to go back to that place you ran away from. But what did he gain? He gained fellowship with those he knew and loved. He gained an opportunity to encourage them by revealing the glory of God and the transformation found in Christ. I just want to make an aside here. Look, as we think of Onesimus, sometimes we are so worried about our past mistakes that we miss out on present opportunities. I see this all the time. Where people come and say, oh, no, no, I, I can't do that. You don't know what I've done. I can't be used by God in that way because of this past what if Paul said, Onesimus, go back? There's, there's some uh, church history, there's different documents that even lead us to believe that Onesimus actually became the pastor of the Colossian church. And so think of what opportunities would have been lost if, if Paul said, but I want to send you back. Oh no, I, Paul, they know me. They know who I was. They, they know my, bat, my history. They know how useless I was. And yet Paul, but he went and imagined the encouragement that that body received. So what did they do? Why did Paul send these two to Colossae? Well, he tells it in verse 7, they, that they will tell you all about my activities, that he sent them in verse 8, for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your heart. And then at the end of verse 9, that they will tell you of everything that was taking place here. They're going to give an account. Now, what kind of account are they going to give? If, if this is something like, hey, I'm going to send you someone that's really going to encourage you, what kind of news would you expect if it's encouraging news? Good news. This is great news. Hey, 
we are just seeing all of this miraculous growth. Everything is going fantastic. Now, there was an element of that that was true. Paul begins the book by talking about the gospel, which is increasing and bearing fruit in you just as it does across the entire world. So there was incredible, extraordinary results that were happening, but what else are they going to share? Where's Paul? He's in prison. What is Paul praying for? What did he just ask them to pray? Pray that God would open a door that I might reveal, might speak clearly the word of God, reveal the mystery. Paul said earlier in, at, in chapter 2, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Earlier he talked about how he was suffering. How is that kind of news part of the encouragement for the Colossian church? Some of you might remember when we preached through chapter 2, verses, uh, starting at verse 1, and we had the treasure chest up here. The kids definitely remember if we have them here. But the, we had the treasure chest here and there, there was a treasure in there. And there was all of these, these different temptations that wanted to take away, it was Delia, take Delia away from the treasure. And yet she suffered and struggled in saying no. She kept that treasure. What did that struggle, what did that suffering reveal? This is the greater treasure. The encouragement that the Colossian church is going to receive from Paul is that I am struggling and the reason I'm struggling is because the reward I'm looking at is far greater than the present suffering and struggles I'm facing. Something greater is happening. That's an encouragement. It's an encouragement to see people going and doing hard things because they think that what's coming is better. Think about even the, the parable of, of the 99 sheep. Do you think the 99 sheep looked at all of the work and effort the shepherd did for that one and were begrudging him and saying, man, you're ignoring us for that one sheep? What about us? Aren't we important too? No. They're looking and saying, he loves us that much. He loves us in order to suffer, to struggle, to go after the lost one. It was an encouragement. For the Colossian church to hear about the struggles of Paul and his companions was an encouragement. To know, wait a second, this really is worth it. So what do we see from Paul? Just in these verses, we see that Paul relied on faithful friends. Paul is limited. This is his first imprisonment in Rome. He sends others to do what he can't do. Paul understood that God gives friends in the faith to help believers faithfully fulfill their mission. Paul understood that, yes, maybe he is limited. Maybe he's locked away. But the word of God isn't locked away. And he looks at the resources that God has given him. And he says, one of the tools that God has given me in order to proclaim Christ is faithful friends. And he uses those. He relied on them. So often, how often do we see Paul talking about the people he knows? Paul was all about relationships. Who did he learn that from? Jesus. Christ was all about relationships. Christ was all about these other people, even Christ. And we would think, well, wait, how did Christ rely on friendships? Well, did he stay 
Did he further the mission? Did he spread the gospel himself? Or what did he do? He gave it to his friends. In John 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. Because you're doing my commands. You're going forward. We see this example in Christ that Christ relied on us, on his friends, to accomplish the mission. God gives friends in the faith to help believers faithfully fulfill their mission. See, we need to understand that that one of the reasons we fail is because we ignore this ordinary gift. Oh, what, what are friends going to do? No, no, my whole focus is my vertical relationship with God. If I could just put this into imagery, if when you're building things, let's say that your goal was to build something as tall as you could. Are you going to do that by just one post and just try to and keep stacking a single stack of blocks all the way up? No, what do you really need to support that vertical relationship? You need the horizontal if you look at, at I, uh, this week, I set up a tent in my yard. And, and if I just had those vertical posts, it'd fall right over. It needed those horizontal. It needed those other supports. Paul realized that. He utilized it. Paul relied on faithful friends. But with the, with the other thing that we see is that Paul was a faithful friend. How were Tychicus and Onesimus able to give a full report? Why were they able to tell the Colossians everything? Because Paul included them. He invited them in. He encouraged. He exhorted them. He helped them along the way. Paul was an encouragement to them so that now they could be an encouragement to others. We've been reading uh, as a family, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. We just finished the first book and now we're reading the sequel. And it's amazing how much um, John Bunyan brings up this idea of fellowship. How often the, the pilgrim on the road is discouraged because there's no one else near him. And then we see that place where, where both friends aid each other. They come alongside and they walk together. That's what we have here. It is an ordinary gift, but it produces extraordinary results because it's built on the extraordinary foundation of Christ. So here's the question for us before we go on to the next section. Are you finding faithful friends? Are you seeking for those friends who will push you to accomplish God's mission? Do you see the friendships that God has put around you as a gift from him? That horizontal support that will allow you to go further than you could go on your own. Are you also being that faithful friend? Are you being someone that is encouraging others towards faithfulness? Both ideas we see here in Paul. Ordinary method, extraordinary results. Let's move on now to see the faithful examples in verses 10 through 14. Paul's going to list six, uh, well, seven names, but six different individuals. This is what it says. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So the instructions are about Mark. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers and for the kingdom of God, uh, fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. 
Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Within this portion, we're given the the six different names. Why is Paul doing that? Well, remember, where has Paul never been? Who has he never seen? The Colossians. So so they don't have the faithful example of, of Paul himself. They've never interacted with him. Moreover, they have a problem. Paul has just said, some of the examples you guys are looking at, you should not be looking at. Some of the people that you've put in authority to pass judgment on you, to disqualify you, they should not be in authority over you. They are speaking according to their sensual mind. They are doing things according to man-made religion. Stop listening to them. Their formula is faulty. Well, if you're the Colossian church, what are you like, uh, now what? Epaphras, who shared the gospel with us, he's gone Paul, we've, we've never met you. The few people that we thought were going to help us get further along, you're saying it's not them. So Paul pro- provides, there are examples. There are people that you can look at. This is a lesson for us. Sometimes we go so individualistic and we think, no, it's just me and Jesus. And that's all there is. And we lose sight of the wonderful other examples. This week I did something I normally don't do. I listened to another person's message on this passage. And that process, I'm not preaching his message, but there was an element of edification in doing that because I thought, wait a second, wow, I would have never thought to do that. He's an example for me in this. So often we've seen the same thing when I look at others of you and I think, wow, Stephen Page is a better evangelist than me. I need to look at his example. Ben Hibbard is so loving and serving to others. Kristen Hibbard, hospitality. I need to look at those examples. I'm not good at those. So Paul provides examples He starts off with Aristarchus. He says, my fellow prisoner greets you. Aristarchus was a constant companion of Paul. We first hear about Aristarchus when uh, they were in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there was the large uh, riot that happened and they're all in the temple of Artemis and they're yelling um, uh, all about Artemis. And in that, they, they grabbed Aristarchus, they grabbed Gaius, they grabbed some other people and they brought them in. And for hours, they're in the middle of this mob and this riot. And after that, he still chose to continue with Paul, even though it was Paul's words that incited this riot. After that, he goes with Tychicus to Jerusalem. Then later, he goes on Paul's trip to Rome, and that's the trip where they get shipwrecked. And then once they finally reach Rome, he doesn't abandon Paul. He joins him in prison. Some commentaries think that this imprisonment was actually voluntary, that Aristarchus chose to be a prisoner with Paul. Whatever the reason, we see a faithfulness in Aristarchus. He has remained with Paul even through suffering. He did not abandon Paul in the midst of difficulties. The next person we see is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now we know much more about Mark. We don't know the instructions that Paul is referring to here. 
But who is this Mark? Well, this is the Mark in the Garden of Gethsemane who ran away naked because he was so scared. This is the Mark who on Paul's first missionary journey abandoned Paul and Barnabas, his cousin. This is the Mark who Barnabas wants to bring on the next missionary journey, the second missionary journey, and Paul and Barnabas have an argument and there is division. So if that's the Mark in Paul's mind, what kind of instructions do you think he's going to give to the Colossians? Avoid Mark. Mark is not worth it. He is going to hang you out to dry. He's going to run away naked. Don't rely on Mark. What does he say? Welcome him. We don't know the instructions, but but what we see here is that welcome him. This is a beautiful picture of forgiveness and reconciliation. We see that Paul is following his own command from the earlier chapter. In verse 13, chapter 3, verse 14, 13, Paul says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Paul didn't write Mark off forever. And it's a good thing. Mark went on to write the gospel of Mark. Mark went on to be an incredible comfort to Paul. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul is once again in prison in Rome, but this is his final imprisonment. Do you know what he says to Timothy? Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Paul is providing another faithful example, and yet in this example, different from Aristarchus, who apparently we see a pattern of faithfulness, who even though in the mob, even though in the shipwreck, even in all those ministries, even in imprisonment, he remained faithful. Paul is presenting him, but he's also presenting Mark, who has a tarnished history. And yet what he's showing is the work that Christ can do in transforming. He then goes and says, Jesus, who is called justice. This is the only time that uh, Jesus, uh, this Jesus or Joshua um, is mentioned in, in, uh, in Scripture, so we don't know much about him. But then he says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Now, why would Paul bring that up? Part of it is because some of the heresy that was happening was a Jewish nature. Some of the things, the Sabbath, the new moon, the festivals, the, what you can eat, what you can't touch, all of those things were more of a Jewish nature. And so part of the problem of Paul saying, no, you don't need to do that. He's kind of demonstrating here, yes, I'm a, Paul, I'm a, I'm a Jew, but that's not my main thing. The other element is, is, a, dis, is a sad part. All the other Jews had abandoned Paul, but here were some that had been faithful. They were workers for the kingdom of God and they were a comfort. Paul then turns to uh, three other individuals and these are the Gentile examples. The first is Epaphras. He gets the longest description in our passage, but that's because this is the one that was known to them. This is the one that they knew what it would look like to imitate. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you? A servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf. How is he struggling? in his prayers. 
that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. This is an example who has been faithful. The entire reason that they are a church that exists is because of the ministry of Epaphras. And Paul is saying, he has worked hard for you. And he didn't just work hard for you when he was with you. He continues to struggle for you. I think there's a question here that we need to ask. Do we, are we a faithful friend, a faithful example like Epaphras? Do we struggle in our prayers for others? But look at what, what the, 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 the prayer is. What, what does he pray about? Are, is it their earthly circumstances? Is it their personal, physical health? No. Can we pray about those? Absolutely. But sometimes our proportion is way off. How often is the main way that we pray for other people according to their earthly circumstances and their physical health? And yet what we see here is prayer about their spiritual health, their spiritual circumstances. He wants them to grow, to stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. So are we a friend like Epaphras? Do we pray for others like that? Are we looking for faithful examples like Epaphras among our midst? Are we going and saying, I need you to be an Epaphras in my life. I need someone I can look at so I can imitate you as you imitate Christ. Paul then shares two more. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And we know Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, who wrote Acts, who traveled often with Paul, who remained with him, even when we'll see in, in first, uh, 2 Timothy 4. But then he also mentions Demas. And Demas is an interesting one. Because right now, he is being presented as a faithful example, but later in 2 Timothy 4.10, it says this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You need to understand this, that this ordinary method of, of finding faithful friends, it's not foolproof. Meaning there will be friends that you think are friends in the faith, you think are faithful, and they will hurt you. But that's not an excuse to ignore the good gift of God of faithful friends. I know that some of you have been very hurt by the church. Some of you have been wounded and you bear scars from those who claimed to be in the faith. Don't let those wounds and scars keep you from experiencing the good gift of friends in the faith that are meant to help you have an extraordinary transformation. Who are Paul's friends? What's the one common denominator of all of these six people? Is it their occupation? Is it their nationality? Is it, what is the one thing that links all of these people? They're in Christ. All of the friends that Paul recommends, he recommends because they are in Christ. Moreover, the reason they are faithful examples is because they are imitating Christ. They are being transformed into the image of their creator. If you aren't sure what to look for in a friend or aren't sure how you should be a friend, use Christ as your model. Be a friend like Jesus Look for friends who will be Jesus to you. Don't do this alone. God gives friends in the faith to help believers faithfully fulfill 
their mission. We also see that within the makeup of Paul's friends, the power of the gospel is revealed. According to the world, this group of people shouldn't be friends. They are from different places. They have different social standings. They have different cultures. They are from different races. And yet these friends are willing to do anything for each other. What does that reveal? The power of the gospel. The power of the uniting work of Christ. This is what we saw in Colossians 3.11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Here, in this church, those who are truly part of the church, Christ is all and in all. What does that reveal? When people are looking at Paul's list of 11 friends, they should say, this doesn't make any sense. But they're friends because they are in Christ. I also want us to see the the effectiveness of the the friends. Compare and contrast the the way that Paul is writing this letter in his first imprisonment compared to his second imprisonment. What's the tone here? Do you get the idea that Paul is writing this discouraged? Discouraged. Do you get this, the idea that, that Paul is writing with a heavy heart? No. What is he asking them to pray? Hey, pray that God would open a door, not for my freedom, but that I could proclaim Christ. What is he telling them? Hey, I'm sending you these people to encourage you. Paul has these faithful friends surrounding him, and it's changing everything. Compare that with 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9, verse 9 through 14. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Do you see the difference of Paul's countenance when he does not have those faithful friends to lean on? I think many of us are going through life without those faithful friends. We're going through hard things, and they are hard, but they're made that much harder because we don't have those faithful friends to rely on. Let's look at the final exhortation. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. In Paul's final exhortation, he is pushing the Colossians to do, to develop the same type of support that he has. He exhorts them in their relationships. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read this. He's fostering relationships with those around them. He's encouraging them to pursue the same mission with others. He's not saying, hey, you church in Colossae, do things, only you, be a bubble in this world. No, link up with others, greet them, 
encourage them. Read what I sent to them. Now you uh, have them read what I sent to you. Foster relationship with those around you. Pursue the same mission with others. Encourage faithfulness. What does he tell them to say? Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. It's likely, based off of the beginning of Philemon, that Archippus is the son of Philemon. And here we see them encourage him. Encourage him to faithfulness. All of these elements, these these simple, ordinary means and methods that Paul is now saying, you now do the same. Greet others around you. Encourage them. Pursue the mission with, together. Encourage faithfulness. Don't do this alone. Finally, remember me. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand Less than just uh, signatures, like what we do now, if you sign something at the end, Paul often had people uh, manuscript for him. He would dictate to them and they would write it out. But then the end, the stamp of approval was for the, the actual author to write it in their own hand. So it was like a long sentence signature where their name was in there. And that's what Paul's doing. This is, I'm confirming, this is the message I'm giving to you. Remember me. Remember my chains. Remember the price I am paying. Use me as an example and may grace abound in you. In God's grace, he uses ordinary methods to produce remarkable results because they are built on an extraordinary foundation. The problem is we so often ignore the ordinary. You remember the story of Naaman? In the Old Testament, he goes to the prophet and the prophet, and he says, what do I need to do to get rid of this leprosy? Go take a bath. Nope, too simple. I don't want to do that. Too ordinary. That's not going to produce an extraordinary result until he finally did it. And what, did, what happened? An extraordinary transformation. Too often we're ignoring ordinary, but the extraordinary is not in these methods. It's on the foundation that it's built on. It's all based on Christ. Christ did these things. Christ was a faithful friend. Christ relied on faithful friends. These ordinary methods produce extraordinary results because they are built on the extraordinary foundation of Christ. We need to not ignore them. Paul's not a super Christian. He's not a superhero. He didn't have something different. He has the same Holy Spirit. Are we actively looking for faithful friends? Are we actively seeking to be faithful friends? Don't do this alone. God gives friends in the faith to help believers faithfully fulfill their mission. Don't do this alone.